Hello and welcome back to Horror Story Podcast. I'm your host, Trish. I hope everyone's week's going great so far. It's been cold and rainy over here in the tri-state area, which is just the way. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. I'm excited about this week's episode. We're going to be discussing the history of one of the best parts of spooky season, the haunted house. Going to talk about its origins, architecture, monetization, how it became mainstream. There is a lot of very interesting history to cover here, so let's jump right in. Horror and haunts can trace their roots all the way back to ancient civilizations like the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans. The theatrics and storytelling of Greek tragedies, Greco-Roman theater, medieval and Renaissance theater were integral in the development of haunts, as it's where the techniques for creating spooky tableaus and immersive frights began. Fast forwarding to France during the late 1700s, about 1798, it was a time during the aftermath of the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, both which sparked a cultural fascination and curiosity in all things morbid and macabre. There, in an abandoned convent, began a theater of horrors. Started by Etienne Gaspard Robert, who thankfully assumed the stage name of Robertson, because to have to listen to me pronounce that name over and over again would be nothing short of an assault on your ears. I'm sorry, but no matter how hard I try, I just can't wrap my mouth around the French language, and I'd prefer not to butcher it if I can. So, Robertson it is. Robertson was a man who had an affinity for both science and the spectral realm. He was a Belgian physics professor specializing in optics who moved to France and used his brains to create quite the ghastly spectacle of illusions. Inspired by the lantern shows and shadow plays of yore, Robertson felt that he could use his background to make something even better. He built a magic lantern on wheels, which he called the Phantoscope. And if you're wondering what the hell a magic lantern is, it was basically an image projector. But Robertson's creation not only allowed him to project more layers of images, but it also allowed him to move the phantoscope around, giving the illusion that the image was coming at his audience members. He called his show Phantasmagoria and set the tone with candlelight, a speech about the afterlife, ventriloquism, creepy-ass harmonica solos, and smoke made from both nitric and sulfuric acid. Yikes. He was truly hoping to scare audience members to death. (laughs) Robertson loved to scare his spectators and was always working to adapt the show to become more thrilling for them and for himself. He is quoted as saying, I'm only satisfied if my spectators, shivering and shuddering, raise their hands or cover their eyes out of fear of ghosts and devils dashing towards them. If even the most indiscreet among them run into the arms of a skeleton. Robertson died in 1837, but his influence lives on in horror theater and cinema. Moving into the 1800s, with the French Revolution still all the rage, one woman took her already well-known and respected gift for creating wax sculptures and turned it into one of the most iconic attractions known across the globe. Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors Madame Tussaud was born Anna Maria Grusschultz and was the protege of physician-turned-sculptor Philippe Curtius, who Tussaud's mother worked for as a housekeeper. Philippe's medical background allowed him to teach Tussaud to master human anatomy and excel in realism. Philippe and Tussaud's public displays of work garnered a lot of attention. 
It started out with sculptures of writers, thinkers, and royal family members and shifted into something a little darker given the increased curiosity from society regarding public executions that the French Revolution and Reign of Terror had sparked. Tussaud was assigned the task of creating death masks and sculpting severed heads of the enemies of the National Convention during the Revolution, aka those who sought to abolish the monarchy and transform France into a republic. Her work served as both political commentary and historical records. Notable names included in this display were Maximilien Robespierre and Marie Antoinette. The success of these works was due to Tissot's talent and just how lifelike she was able to make not only the sculptures look, but the expression on their face and the damage done to them. Homegirl did not cut a single corner. Emma McAvoy, author of Gothic Tourism, writes, Tussauds' bleeding heads were spectacles of a very bloody and very recent history. She did not present this narrative in the mode of tragedy, but in the mode of horror, the reduction to pulped flesh. Her figure of Robespierre showed not only the severed head, but the bloodied, broken jaw, result of a gunshot wound that had him screaming at the guillotine. Later, she would move her exhibition to London and designate a separate room to display the more gruesome of her creations. It would assume many names over time, the Other Room, the Dead Room, the Black Room, and finally, the Chamber of Horrors, a name coined by Trousseau herself. For an upcharge, you can walk through the Chamber of Horrors and scare the shit out of yourself. Although she died in 1850, her museum and legacy are still very much alive today. Okay, staying in the 1800s and traveling back to France, we've reached where quote-unquote queasy realism meets gaudy melodrama. A theatrical display so proudly gruesome, it delighted in the reports of its attendees fainting during the show. It's none other than the Grand Guignol Theatre in Paris. The theatre opened in 1897 in an old chapel in the Pigalle district in Paris. Pigalle was a sort of scandalous district, a red-light district, if you will. Pigalle was also home to another very infamous nighttime hotspot, the Moulin Rouge. The theater started out innocently enough, attempting to show short plays that told the tales of everyday citizens in Paris. But when the theater ran a play set in the Franco-German War that depicted a French female sex worker murdering a German soldier, well, it really got the people going. The owner of the theater at the time, Max Mori, knew that horror, violence, and gore was the new brand for the Grand Guignol. While it embraced horror theater and terrifying its audience members, the theater wasn't interested in showcasing the supernatural like Robertson's Phantasmagoria. The Grand Guignol wanted to show everyday horrors, the horrors that humanity was capable of, like serial killers, escaped lunatics, and violent attacks. These were stories that Parisians could read about in the local newspaper and then come see brought to life on stage. One of the actors of the Grand Guignol had significant input on the special effects used during their performances, Paul Ratineau. He not only assumed the role of actor, but was also stage technician, manager, and human viscera and gore extraordinaire. Paul was especially famous for his invention of stage blood that not only looked like real blood, but also congealed under the stage lights and dried to form scabs. It is said to have consisted of glycerin, methyl cellulose, which is the stuff actually used to make ectoplasm in Ghostbusters, and carmine, a red pigment that is made from boiling dried insects, which has been widely used as dye in food and beauty products. 
which is just pretty fucking horrifying on its own. Other props and effects that the actors used on stage were animal eyeballs given to them from a taxidermist that were then coated in clear aspic jelly and stuffed with blood-soaked anchovies, early forms of latex to mimic melting skin from acid attacks, and strips of elastoplast, which was an early adhesive bandage created in 1929. They would color the adhesive side red and use them to simulate skinning someone alive. All of this combined with the mega talent of the actors, lighting and stage blocking, and the incorporation of illusion and magic tricks proved to be supremely terrifying for spectators. The Grand Guignol Theater officially closed in 1962, with attendance dwindling in the last few decades. And now we have arrived at what is widely considered the first official haunted house. And I'm sure you're wondering, well, what the fuck have I been listening to this whole time? Great question. Let me answer that for you. While the aforementioned horror theaters and Chamber of Horrors exhibition technically aren't haunted houses, they did pave the way for the pay-to-play haunted attractions that we know and love today. Special effects and techniques were developed in these historical attractions that would influence both the haunt scene and the horror genre. All of these attractions tapped into our deepest fears, curiosities, and highlighted just how bloodlusty most people are. You know the marketing motto, sex sells? Well, we learned scary sells too. The first official haunted house, originally called the Haunted Cottage, was built in 1915 in Liphook, England by Patrick Collins, a carnival creator and manager, as a gift for his wife, Flora. I mean, how's that for romance? Sorry, folks, every kiss does not begin with K. It begins with H for haunted house. Anyway, this was wartime in Britain. The English, constantly surrounded by disease, death, and destruction, were seeking solace and relief in carnivals and fairs. It's here where Patrick thought that the idea of a sort of spooky funhouse would be a great place for the British to get a release. He felt that this could be a place where people could go to face some of their fears and release the tension, knowing that in the end, they'd be safe. The haunted cottage was powered by steam and was roughly the size of a train car. The scares provided weren't of the nitric acid smoke slippery animal eyeball persuasion like those of the horror theater, but for a family-friendly crowd at a carnival, it got the job done. Thrill-seekers would walk through the haunted house in darkness. There, they would encounter rocking floors, blasts from air from beneath them, and walls that shook. The haunted cottage would later become known as the Orton and Spooner Ghost House. While I can't find any information as to when exactly the name change took place or as to why, I'm only left to assume that it had to do with Orton and Spooner's connection to the carnival fairgrounds at this time. George Orton and Charles Spooner were an engineering team that designed and produced some of the most sought-after fairs, carnival rides, and wagons. The Haunted Cottage is now part of the Hollycomb Steam Collection, a heritage museum that showcases steam-powered vehicles, carnival rides, and attractions, located in Hampshire, southeast England. While Patrick Collins may have created the first one in 1915, Haunted houses wouldn't gain traction until over 15 years later, where a major historical event would ramp up Halloween pranking to a dangerous level. Mischief Night was a fun tradition of pranking on Halloween night that Irish and Scottish immigrants had brought over to America. It was mischievous, all right, but still had youth and innocence attached to it. 
Pranks typically consisted of throwing a fake dead body on train tracks, leaving smoldering cabbage stalks in the keyholes of front doors so a neighbor's home would be filled with gnarly-ass-smelling farty cabbage smoke, or stealing a neighbor's front gate. Nothing too crazy here, right? I mean, okay, the train tracks dead body thing was majorly inconvenient for those on the train, and I'm sure pretty frightening at first, but no one got hurt. Then came the Great Depression. The Great Depression was a time of extreme economic downturn spanning roughly from 1929 to 1941. Triggered by the Black Thursday and Black Tuesday stock market crashes, weak banking systems, and overproduction of goods, it set into motion an economic crisis that would not only affect Americans, but countries around the globe as well. The Great Depression left many Americans unemployed, hungry, and homeless. All of this exacerbated young boys' mischief night antics, and by Halloween of 1933, the public had had enough. There was concern and anger and outrage. Halloween pranking had reached a dangerous level. Setting off dynamite, starting fires, sawing down telephone poles, vandalism, stoning people. It had basically become the purge, mischief night edition. You did not want to be outside on Halloween night. Halloween of 1933 was referred to as Black Halloween, implying that that year had been just as catastrophic as the stock market crashes that catalyzed the Depression era. It was during this time that FDR gave his famous quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, fear and some diabolically exuberant-ass youths. It was so bad that cities considered banning Halloween. However, they found an even better way to distract the boys on Halloween. Enter the haunted house. Civic authorities, religious groups, and community organizations were basically looking to keep these kids off the streets. Money and resources during this time were pretty scarce, so people had to make do with what they had. They came together, pooled resources, and organized what was called house-to-house parties. Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, writes, Kids would stop at one house to receive costumes, such as a white sheet to be a ghost. The next house might hand out treats, and the others would set up a tiny haunt in their basement. Kids could travel from house to house, exploring a different spooky scene. And if you're sitting there thinking, hey, that kind of sounds like modern-day trick-or-treating, well, yes, you're exactly right. But that's a podcast for another time. Neighborhoods really got into this new tradition. There was even a pamphlet released in 1937 from the Minneapolis Halloween Fun Book that taught parents how to set up the perfect home haunt. And I'll read you a quote from the pamphlet now. This was also featured in Morton's book. An outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts and witches in the cellar or attic. Hang old fur and strips of raw liver on the walls where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners. Damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling to touch his face. Doorways are blockaded so that guests must crawl through a long, dark tunnel. At the end, he hears a plaintive meow and sees a black cardboard cutout outlined in luminous paint. Spooky indeed. These DIY trails of terror grew over the next 20 years and went from luminous paint and raw meat to incorporating more elaborate tableaus and theatrics like those of the horror theater, with homemade electric chairs designed to deliver tiny shocks and mock autopsies and surgeries. The home haunts were effective at minimizing the mischief night pranks, 
both in frequency and severity, but they didn't disappear completely. Kids still wanted mischief night, so they kept their new traditions of trick-or-treating and haunted houses on Halloween, and just moved their mischief to the 30th. Thankfully, for the most part, although there's always exceptions, these pranks were more on the egg-throwing shaving cream level as opposed to the setting-off explosives level. Progress, I guess? And speaking of progress, it was time for the American Haunted House to go from home haunt to countrywide paid attraction, courtesy of none other than Walt Disney. Walt, drawing inspiration from the Winchester Mystery House and an illustration made by Harper Goff, artist and longtime Disney collaborator, began construction of the Haunted Mansion in 1961. He dreamt of a section of his theme park that would remain spooky season 24-7, 365. Disney originally wanted the Haunted Mansion to remain a walkthrough haunt. However, capacity regulations inside the mansion compared to the sheer volume of visitors the theme park received daily made it impossible. They shifted gears and turned it into more of a haunted ride. The attraction would officially open in August 1969. Using imagination, artistry, and the latest technology, Disney brought the haunted house to a new level. The scare wasn't what could possibly be lurking in the shadows, but was moving right in front of you. The Haunted Mansion featured audio animatronics and the technique of Pepper's ghost, named after the scientist John Pepper, who utilized refracted light to create a hologram that could even give the illusion that the image was levitating, bringing apparitions and witches to a ghastly new level. Over the next few years, the haunted house industry exploded. California's Knott's Berry Farm became the first haunted theme park. In 1973, Knott's Halloween Haunt, later called Knott's Scary Farm, would open from October 26th through the 28th. It featured haunted rides, a maze, and a haunted house. Youth for Christ, an evangelical Christian organization, started Campus Life, who created some of the scariest haunts around that included creepy, maniacal clowns and mock surgical scenes that terrorized attendees. It was also during the 70s that the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs, a nonprofit leadership training and civic organization, also became a big name in the haunt game. Their fundraiser haunts were so expertly done that two members of their Illinois chapter, Tom Hillegoss and Jim Gould, wrote a manual on creating the perfect haunt. Had about 20,000 copies printed, and Tom took the success of the book and his haunts and started The Haunted House Company. The HHC went on to host seminars on marketing, promotion, making merch, and haunt production. He even taught members how to apply horror makeup. Hillegoss was convinced that the JCs would own Halloween. And while the JCs had the blueprint, they lacked the capital to move into the 80s and 90s and afford the new safety regulations imposed upon haunts that were directly implemented as a result of a massive tragedy that would change the haunt game forever. On May 11, 1984, at Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson, New Jersey, eight teenagers lost their lives in a fire at the theme park's Haunted Castle attraction. The attraction was built out of several aluminum trailers with an external facade on the front. When the fire broke out, which was later ruled to be arson, although highly debated, the aluminum walls turned the haunted house into an oven. Seven of the eight teenagers were found huddled together close to the exit, and the eighth just a few feet beyond that. For those who were lucky to escape the fire, it was reported that they weren't sure if the smoke was part of the act. 
When they finally made their way outside and saw that the haunted castle was up in flames, it was then they knew. A fire inspector from Jackson Township in New Jersey testified that the haunted castle did not hold the building permit required by law and was not equipped with a sprinkler system or smoke alarms. The aftermath of this tragedy saw a steep decline in the smaller mom-and-pop haunted house attractions. Politicians enacted stronger safety regulations, and the haunts like those run by volunteer organizations in the JCs just could not compete with bigger organizations who could afford to purchase a space and make sure that it was equipped with all the necessary safety equipment required by law to protect its attendees. Not only that, but it should come as no surprise that a for-profit organization was able to invest on things like better props, better haunts, advertising. Eventually, the smaller, non-profit and volunteer haunts just got pushed out or bought out. Today, the haunted house industry is worth over $300 million. All right, now let's dive into the architecture of the haunted house, because it's something that's very distinct throughout its history and its representation in popular culture. When asked to picture a haunted house, most of us will usually refer back to one architectural style, whether we realize it or not, and that's Second Empire architecture. Think the house that Norman Bates lived in in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Second Empire refers to the reign of the President of the Second Republic of France, Napoleon III, or Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, who was Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew. The style featured mansard roofs, gothic pillars, and bay windows, among other things. I'm going to post a picture of some examples of the style of architecture to the podcast Instagram, because describing this is not going to do it any of the justice it deserves, and seeing is believing. Second Empire style reached peak popularity around the 1870s, and is sometimes considered the first style of the Victorian era. These manors were stunningly gorgeous and housed America's wealthy. They were basically the McMansions of their day. As society moved into the 1900s, their popularity began to decline, and a new movement was brewing. Industrialization had raised anxieties, and soon came a push for simpler, more natural craftsmanship. It became known as the arts and crafts movement, and designs were moving away from the ostentatious nature of the Victorian era and its French architecture. Architects, including Frank Lloyd Wright, had completely changed direction. They wanted a style that was distinctly American and showcased longer, more horizontal lines as opposed to the towering vertical structures that comprised Second Empire styles. They were referred to as prairie homes as it celebrated the low landscape of the Midwest. And I'll post a picture of this style uh, to the podcast Instagram for comparison. I'm personally not a fan of this style of architecture whatsoever, but hate it or love it, America was moving away from the Gilded Age and leaving both it and the Second Empire style behind. These homes were now lonely, abandoned, and desolate. Edward Hopper, an artist best known for his work Nighthawks, painted a Second Empire home in another one of his well-known works titled House on the Railroad in 1925. Commentary on the painting mentions the juxtaposition of such a beautiful yet empty home and the modern railroad tracks, how it almost seems as if you're moving away from the house, the architecture, and the era. An art critic at the time called it a dead American house formed from tortured wood and referred to the architectural style as haunted. Over the years, the style would come to be synonymous with spooky and decrepit. It's most notably used as the house in Psycho, 
and as the setting for two very famous families, the Munsters and the Adams. Charles Adam used the house in his cartoons for the Adams family as far back as 1938, all the way up to the show's premiere in the 60s. The house has since often been used as a setting for all things haunted and wicked in the horror genre. That seriously creepy-ass house in Stephen King's It remake, The Well House? Yeah, that's Second Empire architecture, baby. The Creel House from the new season of Stranger Things? You know, where Vecna likes to get into all sorts of shenanigans? You guessed it, Second Empire. Thankfully, this style of architecture is beautiful enough to stand the test of trends, time, and poltergeists. Okay, that wraps up this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you next time, and stay spooky, friends. Spooky.